What a wonderful time of worship. We are indeed blessed by the love of Christ, the love of Jesus, and the amazing grace of God. And in fact, amazing grace is what we're talking about today in Romans 9. Open your Bibles with me to Romans 9. John Newton, when he wrote that song, did not intend for it to be America's well-known hymn that it is today, sung at sporting events, or at least it used to be, and probably the, the most well-known English hymn around the world. He originally wrote it to reflect God's amazing grace taught in Scripture, the grace that John Newton preached on in his little church in Scotland, and the amazing grace that God would save a sinner like him, that God would save sinners like us. From all that we are and were and would be, God saves us according to his grace. In the Bible, this is called election. This is called election. Today's sermon is titled, God's Sovereignty and Unconditional Election. And we return to Romans chapter 9. I told you last week that these are hard passages for some of us to take. Not so hard to understand as much as hard to accept. Because they challenge our thinking. They challenge whatever we've been taught in the past. They challenge what we have thought about Christ and God and the gospel. But this is the word of God. So I want to read it to you. I want to explain it. I want to apply it. Let's look at Romans 9. Paul is here speaking about the future of Israel. Before he gets there, though, he wants to talk about what God is doing at the present time with the nation Israel. So let's begin in verse 6 of chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I still remember the exact place and time in Louisville, Texas, as I drove up to get my dry cleaning all those years ago. I'd been a Christian about a year and I thought, you know, I want to learn something deep. I want, to, I want to learn something about the Bible that I'm not getting at the church I was attending at the time. So I turned on Christian radio, which can be dangerous sometimes. But this one, I heard an old raspy man talking and writing on the chalkboard. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is a real class. This is a lecture. And I began to listen and he starts talking about God choosing some to save and that God had elected. And I thought, I've never heard any of this. I don't think I believe this. I don't think that's in the Bible. And I had to run in and get my dry cleaning and come back out. And I was hoping it would still be on the radio and it already had passed the turn of the half hour. So it was gone. But I thought, whatever that is, that does not sound biblical. Fast forward six or seven years later, I'm living in Kerrville. And I told you the story last week of how we were challenged about the church we had visited. And so I began to do some research and I heard about election. I heard about total depravity. I heard about perseverance of the saints. So I typed in 
God's election on the internet. The first thing that popped up was R.C. Sproul and the lectures by him. And I started listening to him and I realized that's the man I heard seven years previous as I was picking up my dry cleaning. And at that time, I began to listen to what he was saying closely, look at the scriptures, and eventually saw that indeed election is taught here in scripture. We're talking today about God's electing love, God's sovereign grace. Let me define election for you. I put the the adjective unconditional election in front of it because many theologians do that. Election is that God the Father chose to put his special electing love on some before the creation of all things. It's God's plan in eternity past to save sinners. We speak of it being unconditional because it's not based on any condition that we have to meet. It's not based on a merit, in other words, or a work that we do. God does not look forward in time to see what we might do and then say, I will choose that person because they're going to be so smart. They're going to be so good. They're going to come out of the womb and be so holy. Now, the Bible paints a different picture of humanity. And just to review what we looked at last week, I said that we would save verse 13 to cover this week and answer some questions. But 10 through 12, you'll recall, taught us that the election of God is not by circumstances. Both of these twins were conceived at the same time during the same act. It was not by works. It says in the passage, they've not been born yet. They weren't even conceived yet. And yet, these two twins, God is going to choose one from the other. And we also learn that it's not by man's methods or standards. Nothing could make God choose one over the other. Not even the natural standard of the day, which is that the older one would inherit all the blessings, including the covenantal blessings given to Abraham, including those blessings of salvation given to Abraham. No, it's the younger one that would inherit those. It's Jacob, not Esau, that would inherit those blessings. And so then Paul just comes out and says it in verse 13 by quoting from the Old Testament, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this brings up many questions in our mind. You should arrive at this verse and have some questions. Maybe you've already studied it and answered some of those questions. But we need to ask some questions. I want to cover those with you and go into the text and find out what does God intend for us to learn from this? And then how should we apply it? So we're going to ask four questions to answer here from this text regarding God's sovereignty and election. And we'll go through these slowly, but I want to give them all to you up front. Is this election to nations or to individuals? That's a big debate about this passage. Is God talking about whole nations, what's called corporate election? Or is he talking about individuals here? Secondly, the question, what does it mean that God loved Jacob? What does that mean? And even more controversial, what does it mean that God hated Esau? What does that mean? Can God hate someone? Is that right? And then fourthly, how should we respond to this teaching? There's a lot of different ways people respond to a passage like this. How should we respond? How should we respond as those who love the Lord and who follow his word and believe what he says and seek to obey it? How should we respond? There are some bad responses that a Christian can have to this doctrine. And we want to make sure we're having the right one. So number one, 
just looking at one passage today, zooming in on this, and everything we study today will also inform us going forward because the rest of chapter 9 is about the doctrine of election. First of all, is this election to nations or individuals? Some pastors and scholars say this is about nations. This is about Jacob and his progeny, specifically Israel, and Esau represents Edom. This is about whole nations. God is not saying that he chooses some to save, that he's simply choosing nations like Israel for service. That he's making a choice here for Israel to serve him. We know that that's true, by the way, in the Old Testament. God did choose Israel for service. He did not save everyone in the nation of Israel. That's the whole reason Paul has to write Romans 9 through 11. But is that what Paul is talking about here? These pastors and scholars would say, yes, that is what he's talking about here. It was popular from John Wesley's day until now. Wesleyans and Arminians often follow that teaching today. That Jacob I love means that he chose Israel for service and he would bless them in a physical way in this life. And that Esau and the Edomites he did not choose for service and he would not bless them in the same way. Some say this is going to help and protecting us from this teaching that Esau, I hated. Some people think they're a better PR agent than God for him. And so they say, if we just change what's happening here, we can protect God from being misunderstood. But is this what this text in scripture means? That's what we have to ask. What's the context? What does it mean based on the grammar, based on the context of the passage? And context is going to help us a lot. In fact, if we examine the context of this passage more clearly, we're going to see that it can only be referring to individuals being elected. It can only be referring to individuals. Now, you might say, well, even if it is nations, nations are made up of individuals. But I don't think he has nations in view here at all. In fact, the whole point of this chapter is to show that God chooses whom he will save. Let's look at these. I have, let me see how many, six reasons to take this as an individual that he's talking about, not a nation. Look at verse six. He starts off by talking about the nation of Israel. It's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not like God's word has failed just because all the Jews aren't yet believing in Christ, that there's some who don't believe. It's not like the word of God has failed. And he gives the first proof there in verse six, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. He's saying with that, that there's a nation called Israel, ethnic Israel, and not all of them are saved. Within the whole nation of Israel, there are some that are saved. Paul being an example. Many of the early church were Jews who converted to Christianity. Of course, they wouldn't have thought about that. They would have just said, oh, here's our Messiah. Now we believe upon him. Today, we speak more of that as a conversion process, but they were just saying, this is what the prophets had foretold. And we believe upon Christ. Paul is speaking here in verse 6 about a remnant. A remnant of Jews who believe in Messiah. And Paul says, not the whole nation. They're not all chosen in the sense of salvation. But there is a remnant who is saved. So nations are mentioned. But the teaching here after this verse in Romans 9 is speaking of the remnant. And the funnel really of how God chooses down the line of Abraham all the way to Jacob. It's God's choice. 
So he's already narrowed it there to speak of individuals. Secondly, in verses 10 through 12, Paul speaks of Jacob and Esau's conception by one sexual act, verse 10. Then works, neither good or bad, verse 11. Then a reversal of the blessing, which normally comes by birth order in verse 12. You can't say that about nations. He's talking about the individuals. Jacob and Esau, he's talking about two brothers here, real people that existed in history, not nations that would later come about. The third reason we should take this as individuals is Paul uses the name Jacob in verse 13 rather than Israel. He's speaking here and quoting from the Old Testament. And he chose this quote to state, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. If he wanted to talk about nations, then he would put Israel, I loved, but the Edomites, I hated. He's talking about individuals here, not nations. The fourth reason, Paul's answering objections here in 9 through 14 And it makes no sense after this verse to answer those objections if he's talking about nations. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. So that's the objection of that's not fair. God, this idea that you elect some and pass over others, that's not fair. And he says there's no unfairness. There's no unrighteousness with God. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he goes on. He talks about Pharaoh as well. Then in verse 19, you will say to me then, second objection, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? What about human free will? This seems to make us robots, Paul. And he says on the contrary and goes on to answer that question. That makes no sense if he's talking about nations. The objections would be maybe... Why did you elect Israel as a nation? But the Jews who are Christians in Rome reading this part of the letter wouldn't have had any problem with God choosing Israel for service in the Old Testament. They would have amen that. This is an objection, two objections, because it hits us personally, our pride, our hearts. And even as Christians, we want to ask these questions. What about free will? What about fairness? Also, The fifth reason here, the people and the things mentioned in the rest of Romans 9 refer to individuals, not nations. Moses is an individual. Pharaoh in verse 17 is an individual. All the uses of the masculine singular here from 915 forward are speaking of individuals. Look at 915. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom, that's in the singular, both in Hebrew and we can get the idea, of course, in English on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom, singular, I have compassion. It's the same, continuing on down the verse. Every time people are mentioned here, it is in the singular. The one, in verse 918, is singular. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, or the one he desires, and hardens whom are the one he desires. Singular, not speaking of many people in a nation. Verse 20, on contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing, singular, molded, say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Again, the lump of clay as well in the next verse is singular. And the one vessel in verse 21 is singular. Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use? 
It's not the corporate one here as a whole nation. He's talking about individuals. And then lastly, the sixth reason we should take this as election of individuals is the larger context. And it ends in chapter 11. So 9 through 11 is one unit discussing the salvation of Israel. And when you get to 11.5, look at 11.5 here. Again, Paul's not talking about the whole nation. He is saying in this way, then at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. So already we're seeing not a whole nation, but a remnant of that nation that has come to be saved by God's grace and believe upon Messiah. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, the nation, it has not obtained. But the chosen of that nation, those who are saved at Paul's point in life, those chosen have obtained it and the rest were hardened. So if he was talking about nations, he wouldn't say that. He wouldn't say there's part of the nation that is a remnant that's believing, but there's another part that's been hardened. No, Paul is talking about individuals. Individuals. Now, some will say, well, in Malachi, which is where Paul's quoting, in Malachi 1, he's talking about nations. So let's go to Malachi, the end of your Old Testament. If you go to Malachi 1, this is where Paul gets the quote. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. So Malachi is going to write this prophecy down that he receives. And notice, here's what Malachi says. And look at closely where Paul quotes from. God says, I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? So Israel has been sent into captivity. They've been punished. They're coming back to the land. And it says, God is speaking to them. It says, I have loved you. And the response would say from Israel, have you loved us? It doesn't seem like you've really loved us, God. So now here's his reasoning. God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares Yahweh. See, they're all descended from Jacob. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Normally, according to the world, he would receive the blessing. The idea is, no, Israel has received the blessing. Yet, God says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. That's Paul's quote right there. Now, those two are individuals. Jacob is one person. Esau is one person. It's not the Esauites. It's the Edomites that come from Esau. So we are looking at two people. Now, from them, there will come a nation out of each. And Malachi continues on, speaking the words of God here. And I have set his mountains talking about Esau, to be a desolation and his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, clearly there he's talking about a nation by verse 4. Though Edom says, we have been demolished, but we will return and build up the waste places. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, I will pull down, and men will call them a territory of wickedness and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, And you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the territory of Israel. So he starts out, though, talking about individuals. And from that, he talks about the nations. Really what God is doing here is encouraging Israel. He's referring back to these two individuals, these two twin brothers. He chose one. He blessed Jacob. From Jacob comes the nation. He's still blessing them. But Esau, he did not bless. He rejected. And 
from that, he will eventually demolish the Edomites. That's all that is saying there. It is not saying that we should now read back into Jacob, the whole nation, or Esau, the whole nation, all the way back to Genesis. So what Romans 9.13 is picking up on from Malachi 1 is that Jacob and Esau were first individuals and only later nations. God chose one individual over another, not just a nation over another. So you may wonder why go through all of that? Simply because it is a common way that some use to explain away election in Romans 9. That he's simply talking about nations, so there's nothing really to look at here. Move along. We're all fine. We all make the choice to be saved, and it doesn't depend on God at all. All right, secondly, now let's get into the text. What does it mean that God loved Jacob? What does this mean? What kind of love is this? There's a lot of different ways the Bible uses the word love. There's a lot of different ways we use the word love. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And now Paul backs that up by saying it a different way from the Old Testament. As it is written, Jacob I loved. Jacob I loved. The love mentioned here is God's electing love. It's it's God's electing love. He chose Jacob and not his twin brother Esau. Believer, he chose us out of his abounding love. The word love here is just another way to speak of God's choice. It's out of love. It can't be out of anything else. God is doing it out of love. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, before time began. That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us in love is the idea. And then there's this long phrase, this clause in between talking about it. But he chose us in love. God's electing grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's completely out of his own love. We could say out of God's own heart if we wanted to use that language. Second Thessalonians speaks of it. Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God, Paul says, for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. They're the Lord's beloved. Why? He says, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Why? Why are we beloved of God, Paul? Because God chose you. That's the first place you start. Don't look at yourself. Don't think, well, something I did. No, it's because of God's love. You could say it's because of God's grace. It's the same idea here. A different way, of course, of saying it, a different attribute of God. But God's love, God's grace, God's election all tie together. Let's go back now in Romans 8.29. I told you Romans 8.29 and 30, or 8.28 through 30, was the peak. It's the Mount Everest of Romans. And in many ways, we're still on the peak in Romans 9. We're just looking over now into the valley and saying, that's really deep, Paul. That's really deep that you're teaching us all about election here in Romans 9. But what did he say in Romans 8.28? Really, if you believe Romans 8.28, then you'll believe everything that follows right here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Okay, it's for those who love God. Who are those? Well, he says, it's for those who are called according to his purpose. Ultimately, it's his calling 
And then how do we respond in faith and love towards God? He works all things together for good. And everybody, no matter your thinking on election, loves that verse. Because it tells us God's in control. It gives us comfort. It helps us to understand that no matter what happens, God is doing all of these things for a reason. And for the believer, that's a good reason. Those are good reasons that he is bringing things to pass in our life. But the only way he can do that is because he's sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over everything. Every molecule, every salvation, every life. And so Paul goes and narrows it down in verse 29. Speaking of salvation, he's telling us we, need, we can have assurance in our salvation because those whom he foreknew, that means foreloved, those that he loved. Know to know, and I've told you this many times, is to have a close, intimate relationship, especially when it speaks of God knowing someone else. But sometimes husband and wife are said to know one another, and that is talking about physical intimacy. But remember when Jesus said, away from me, I never knew you on the last day. He'll have these people come before him, and they'll say they've done all these great things, and he says, I never knew you. Is he saying that he had no omniscience? That there's something in this world that the Son of God doesn't know? No, he was saying he never had a relationship with them. It was not an intimate, close relationship. A saving relationship. That's what this foreknowledge here. It's not that God looked forward through the corridors of time because God doesn't learn anything. How can God look forward to see what you might do and then go backwards? And it just doesn't work like that. God is God. He doesn't learn anything. He says, he speaks, and things come to pass. So for those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So foreknow or forelove here is the electing love. Then he marks them out. He predestines them to become conformed to the image of his son. So he's looking even past the moment of conversion all the way to complete sanctification. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a great comfort to believers. Because we can know if God has chosen us in eternity past, we're going to make it all the way to the end. We're not falling away. God's not going to let us slip through his fingers and somehow lose our salvation. And that's where Paul goes on in Romans 8 to end with 31 through 39, encouraging us, exhorting us on that truth. The preacher Steve Lawson said, God has a special love for those who he has chosen to save. From eternity past, he has set the affections of his heart upon them to pursue their greatest good. Jesus taught this. This is not a, a doctrine of Paul. Paul didn't invent this after Jesus ascended, and he just thought he'd come up with this doctrine of election. Of course, he quotes from the Old Testament. That should be enough for us. But Jesus himself speaks of election. Go to the Gospel of John. Really, the Gospel of John is a, a story of God's love and God's love for his people. Jesus speaks in John 13, 18. I do not speak about all of you. He's talking to the disciples here. And he says, I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Judas is in that mix. Judas will not be saved. Some people try to slide Jesus in. Some people even say Satan was elected. No, the Bible's clear. In fact, angels, there's no, the elect angels are the holy angels. And the fallen angels are the fallen angels. And there's no redemption of the fallen angels. There's no opportunity 
for the fallen angels to repent. Here, though, Jesus says to all the twelve, I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Now go forward in John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Now the objector would say, well, he's just choosing them for the work of being an apostle. He's just choosing them for the work of being an evangelist, a preacher, a disciple. Now I think it's more than that. And you see that throughout the gospel of John. Matthew wasn't sitting around saying, well, will someone choose me to be their disciple? What is he doing? He's taking money for the Roman government and pocketing a little on the side. And the Roman government didn't care how much he pocketed as long as they got their cut. And Jesus shows up and says, follow me. Matthew wasn't going around saying, hey, can I follow you? Can I follow you? Can I follow you, Jesus? No, Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew did that. That's how he called his disciples. Look at John 17 now. Jesus is praying to the Father in the high priestly prayer. And this is an example of this electing love. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So there's the whole world. And then there's the men that the Father has given the Son. And Jesus says, they were yours and you gave them to me. The Father chooses and he gives them to the Son, who then dies for them and redeems them with his atonement. And they have kept your word, Jesus says. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Because a lot of people rejected what Jesus said. But those that God has chosen and given to the Son, they believe the words of Christ. For the words which you gave me, he says, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. And verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, Jesus says, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about election. Election based on God's sovereign love and grace alone. God had a reason. God had a purpose. We don't know what that is. All we're told, it's according to his purpose in election. We're told that in Romans. Remember Romans 11, 9, 11. Romans 9, 11. Let's go back to our passage here. Why is it, Lord, that you chose me? Here's the best answer you're going to get. And it's mentioned a few other places in scripture. So that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand. Why did he choose Jacob? It was a loving choice, but it was nothing to do with Jacob. He makes that clear. It was so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, his election would stand. That's it. God doesn't tell us. God doesn't tell us. He, it wasn't as if he rolled the dice, as somebody was saying to me before church this morning. It's not like God just suddenly drew a straw and said, oh, look, I think I'll save this guy. He had his reasons. We don't know what they are. We just know that it's according to his purpose, to the kind intention of his will. Whatever it was, it's the kind intention of his will. But it is a loving choice. God loved Jacob and all the elect by special grace. All right, thirdly, the big question. What does it mean that God hated Esau? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The word hate is the problem here. 
Some take this to merely mean loved less. That God loved Esau less than Jacob. God really loved Jacob and blessed him. He still loved Esau, but loved him less. Now, there is some precedent in the Bible for this kind of thinking. Jesus uses this for the word hate in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother or his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There it has the idea of loving less. You have to love Christ more than your family. You can't say, I love my family so much, I can't follow Jesus because they would not be happy with me. They would think down upon me. They would think I'm one of those Christians who is really serious minded, holier than thou. No, Jesus is saying it's, it's almost as if you hate them in the sense that you love less because you love me so much. Jesus says that compared to our love for him, people think that we almost hate our family according to the world's thinking. This can be the idea in a context like that, but I don't think that's the idea here in this passage. The word here to hate usually means to dislike strongly with the implication of aversion or hostility. So really hate here, if you look at the the grammar, it's the opposite of love. Jacob I loved and Esau got the opposite. Esau I hated. How can God hate? That's the question. Isn't hate sinful? How can God hate? Doesn't the Bible say he loves the whole world? Doesn't the Bible say that God loves the whole world? And it does. It's God's common grace, though, that is being mentioned there. God's common grace, love. Romans 2.4, Paul's already talked about this. If you go back to Romans 2.4, it says here, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? So he's talking to Jews and how they are also sinners, just like the Gentiles. The Gentiles might worship false gods and do all kinds of sinful things. But the Jews, they think they can earn their righteousness through works. And he warns them, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's God's gracious attitude, his common grace here, his love for his creation. Here's how Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5.44. And here he's talking about how we should love our enemies. And he compares that to God's love for those who are his enemies. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How does God love all people? He gives them good. He gives them rain. He gives them food. He gives them families. God does show love to those that he rejected. Even Esau was blessed in many ways. He became a great nation for a time, but not eternally blessed. Acts 14, 17 also talks about this love for the world. Paul tells the the pagans that he's evangelizing there in Acts 14. God did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. And he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God loves the whole world and he gives the whole world gladness and food. He doesn't wipe out the whole earth right now. He gives time. He gives time for even repentance. This is the common grace love, but it's different than God's saving love. It's different 
than what we saw in Romans 8, 29 and 30, which is only for those who are called, for those who love God. God loves the whole world, but he does not love the whole world in a saving way. God has a holy hatred and that his wrath is upon sinful man. We saw that in Romans 1. Now there, we could say, well, that's because they are in sin. But here, he's talking about Esau before Esau was even born. Because mankind in general is sinful. It's not as if Esau has to come out and then later end up bad and we understand what God is doing here. No, all men and women are sinful. Do you think Jacob came out and he was righteous? Do you remember what Jacob did? Do you remember how he schemed? Do you remember how he wrestled with God? Do you remember how he schemed and schemed against his brother? John MacArthur talks about this verse in his book, The Love of God. And he says, in a very real sense, God hated Esau himself. It was not a petty, spiteful, or childish kind of hatred. See, that's what we often think about when it comes to hatred. We think of sinful hatred. We don't, we don't think of Jesus, his righteous anger, overturning the money table and the temple. But MacArthur goes on to say, it's not petty, spiteful, or childish kind of hatred, but something far more dreadful. It was divine antipathy, a holy loathing directed at Esau personally. God abominated him as well as what he stood for. How can we think about this? What's another way to think about this? Well, if you have election, we could just say this is the opposite. This is non-election. Getting even more specific, we can say this is rejection. This is God's rejection. And if we wanted to be very much more precise, which we will be as we go through Romans, because this is an objection that comes up. This is God passing over to leave Esau and his fallen sinful state that he inherited from Adam. This is just God passing over. He doesn't have to do anything to Esau to make Esau not believe. Esau is already an unbeliever when he's born because of total depravity, because of man's inherited sin. Theologians call this the doctrine of reprobation. Louis Burkhoff says, reprobation may be defined as that eternal decree of God, whereby he has determined to pass some men by. See, don't think God's actively doing something to cause them to sin. They're already going to sin. He's simply passing them by with the operation, Burkhoff says, of his special grace. He's not giving them his special grace and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. God did not elect all. The Bible teaches that. God chose some. God did not choose everyone. God did not elect all because the Bible teaches us some are not saved and some go to hell. God did not reject all because the Bible teaches us that some people are saved. So we're left with the choice, the correct view, the biblical view, that God elected some to salvation, which means he passed over others who will not be saved. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 9. It's not something the modern American mind loves. It's not something that the world loves. But ultimately, it's about what God says in his word. And we'll talk about the proper response to that in a moment. We see this in Luke 2, where Jesus is born, and they take him up to the temple. And in Luke 2, 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of, and the rise of many in Israel. So God's already predestined the child 
the Son, Jesus Christ, and all that would come about in his life, but also the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Both of these are truths in Scripture. He chooses some, which means he leaves others in their sin. George Whitfield, the great evangelist who preached to 30,000 people. So this, is, this teaching is not a teaching that says don't go evangelize. If you think that, you've got to stay around till we get to chapter 10, and you're going to see all about man's responsibility. Chapter 10 is all about man's responsibility. Chapter 9 is about God's sovereignty and election. Here's George Whitfield, the great evangelist. Without a doubt, the doctrine of election and reprobation must stand or fall together. By making a choice here, he's not making a choice here. That's just clear logic. And we have to be able to say that to understand what this passage is saying logically here. All mankind is destined for hell unless God saves some. He passes some by. He saves others. It is he, it is he that makes the choice. It's him. It's not us. He has free choice. Yes, we have a will. We have a type of free will. His free will is even greater. And our free will is bound by our sin until we come to Christ. Of course, we know God does a great work there. Is not God free to do as he pleases? Is not God free to do as he pleases? Or does he have to submit to our understanding of fairness? That's where Paul's going to go in this next section in Romans 9. All right, back to this question. How can God hate someone? Haven't you heard? God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Isn't that what the Bible says? Here's R.C. Sproul. He says, you've heard it said, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. That's nonsense. God doesn't send the sin to hell. He sends the sinner to hell because he abhors the impenitent sinner. That God does not hate the sin does not bear up under the weight of Scripture. Now, we are not to go around hating sinners, but God has a righteous anger, a holy hatred for sin and sinners. Listen to the Psalms here. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, talking about God, Yahweh. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. God abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Or maybe your translation says God hates the man of bloodshed. Psalm 11.5, Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Psalm 26.5, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Proverbs 6.16, there are six things which Yahweh hates, even seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that's a sin attached to a sinner. A lying tongue, a sin attached to a sinner. And hands that shed innocent blood. That's actual action of a sinner. A heart that devises wicked thoughts. Feet that hasten to run evil. A false witness. That's a person who breathes out lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. And Proverbs 8.13. Lady wisdom is a personification of God's wisdom. Is speaking here. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way. And the mouth of perverted words I hate. God takes sin seriously. And sin's not some amorphous dark thing out there that kind of moves around and then gets sent to hell. God sends sinners to hell. Sinners without Christ go to hell. D.A. Carson wrote a book on this. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And he says one evangelical cliche has it that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. There's a small element of truth in these words. God has nothing but hate for sin 
But it would be wrong to conclude that God has nothing but hate for the sinner. Nevertheless, the cliche, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, is false on the face of it, should be abandoned 14 times in the first 50 Psalms alone. We are told that God hates the sinner. His wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests on both the sin and the sinner. This is God's holiness. If we understand his holiness and his righteousness and our sinfulness, this will not shock us. This will not surprise us. In fact, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Spurgeon was already seeing it in his day where people fought against this, especially since the Enlightenment. We see it more in our day, but he says, I'm not at all surprised, Spurgeon said. I'm not at all surprised that God hated Esau, but I'm greatly amazed that God loved Jacob. When you understand mankind's sinfulness, when you understand the sin we're born with, the sin we will soon commit, the sin that we will do over and over in our lives, the surprise is that God loved Jacob. Nobody deserves sovereign free grace. Nobody. We don't deserve it. What do we deserve is judgment, reprobation, rejection. Jacob learned that eventually after he fought with God, both literally and spiritually. Here's what he said in Genesis 32.10. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the truth which you have shown to your slave. Okay, how do we respond? How do we respond? Number four. For some, their response can look quite different to this teaching. Some get upset at this teaching. I remember a a man that I talked to and I had met as he came to my house and we were chatting and he was very upset. You're a church that teaches that? And I said, well, let's look in the Bible. It's it's right here. I mean, what what do you make of it? He didn't have an answer. So we spent three hours doing a Bible study and He said, well, I accept that it's there, but I don't like it. And then we haven't chatted about it since. Some get very upset. Sometimes people get upset at the preacher who preaches it. Some people get upset at the church that believes that. Your church believes that? That's in your doctrinal statement. Sometimes people get upset at the Apostle Paul and say, that's different than Jesus. Paul is separate from Jesus. So they try to split Christ and Paul. Some even get upset at God himself. This is how... The Jews responded to Jesus. You remember he's in his hometown and he's asked to read in the synagogue. This is Luke 4. We'll just look at this real quick. Some get upset. That's a bad response. That's not a good response. So Jesus is asked to read scripture. He chooses the scroll. He reads from Isaiah. He says in Luke 4.21 that this was about himself. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him. And they were marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. Thank you, Pastor. That was wonderful. We love that, Jesus. Thank you. They were saying, is this not Joseph's son? This is amazing. This little kid who grew up among us, here he is. He's reading the scriptures. He's making sense of it. He's saying it's fulfilled today. That's wonderful. And then he says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown. So they were getting ready for a big miracle. This wonderful teacher showed up. Thank you, pastor. This is great. Now show us a miracle. Come on, rabbi. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. And the land of Sidon, not even an Israelite, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, wonderful. We, we read right past it and don't think anything about it. Look what happened. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff. What was so mad? Why were they so mad? What was so bad that he said? He basically said, God chose a Gentile over Israel in those cases. God went to choose a Gentile, this woman from Sidon, Naaman, the Syrian. Those are Gentiles. God made a choice and that angered them because they wanted Jesus to do what they told him to do. And he said, I'm not going to do it. You have no right to tell me what to do. And let me show you how God chooses what will happen and when it will happen and who he will save. Jesus told them that God elects some Gentiles and passes over some Jews. That's the point of the story. And they hated him for it. That's why J.C. Rowell said of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Some respond in anger. Some respond with criticism in the form of questions. Questions aren't wrong. We've asked questions of the text here today. That's how you study the Bible. Okay, what does this word mean? Let me research it and figure this out. What's the context? I'm speaking here of critical questions. What about free will? It can't be true. Election can't be true because I've heard something about free will. Now, that can be an okay question to ask. Paul's going to address that. Sometimes he's going to be a little strong against that question. But often, this is a type of objection that tries to throw out election. It can't be true because I've always heard about free will. It can't be true because man has responsibility. Yes, we have a will. Yes, we have responsibility. That's chapter 10. The first two questions about fairness and free will, Paul's going to answer. And man's responsibility covered in chapter 10. While questions can be good and helpful in studying the text, we cannot question to death the doctrine of election. We cannot just throw up our hands and say, I don't think it's true because there are some things that are too mysterious for us. There are a lot of things that are too mysterious for us. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things, the revealed things belong to his people. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The revealed things are what he just revealed to us in Romans 9 and Luke 4 and John and all the other books that speak on this subject. So we cannot kill election by the death of a thousand paper cuts. It's been around since God chose Abel over Cain. It's going to be around. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the scriptures. They are going to be here. So let's just accept it, understand it, and ask what it means and how we are to live accordingly. You see, Paul said in Romans 3, 4, may it never be, rather God, let God be true and every man a liar. We're not going to criticize God's doctrines and he's going to change his mind. We don't like that, God. You should change the Bible. It's never going to happen, Paul says. God is true. So how should we respond? Back to the question. How should we respond? We must respond as believers should. First of all, we must be humbled. And I've told you this a lot when we've gone through the doctrine of election. We must be humble. The biggest fear is that something like this, this is what many people say, something like this will make us prideful. God chose me. I'm special. I don't care about all the other people out there. Now, we are not to say that as believers. Maybe there's somebody out there. They're called cage stage, Calvinist or something. But we should not respond like that. If you understand this doctrine, then you understand how it humbles you. Spurgeon again, he says, friends, if you want to be humbled, study election. For it will make you humble under the influence of God's spirit. He who is proud of his election is not elect. And he who is humbled 
under a sense of it, may believe that he is. He has every reason to believe that he is, for it is one of the most blessed effects of election that it helps us to humble ourselves before God. Do we really understand how sinful we are? How depraved we were before God saved us? Do we really understand the doctrine of man and sin? Romans 3.10, Paul's already explained this before he gets to Romans 9. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. See, R.C. Sproul said, if you believe in total depravity, which is what I just read there from Romans 3, which is quotes from the Old Testament Psalms. If you believe that, election is not hard to understand and accept. Because there's no way we would ever be saved if God didn't elect in his love and his grace. James Montgomery Boyce said, when people have trouble with election, and many do, the real problem is not with the doctrine of election, although they think it is, but with the doctrine of depravity that makes election necessary. So let's rejoice in God's electing love. Let's be humbled. Let's rejoice. God did for us what we could never do. Let's rejoice like they did in Acts 13, 48 in Pisidian Antioch. They heard Paul and Barnabas preaching. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's election. As many as had been appointed to eternal life by God is the idea. Now on the other side of it, this doctrine of rejection or reprobation should challenge us. It should terrify us in a sense. It should slow us down and make us realize that God saves some and rejects others. We should search our hearts. We should examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. John Calvin called this decree, even though people give Calvin a bad rap, he said, This was a dreadful decree. Decretum horribile. Not that God had done something wrong, but it's terrifying to think about. And it should terrify the believer and a good sense that God is righteous and holy, but also the unbeliever. Because the only way to know, the only way to know if you are elect is to have true saving faith in Christ. That's it. It's not about people with an E on their forehead. It's not about people who come to church versus not come to church, although we expect believers to come to church, of course. It is about, do you have true saving faith? And if you do, then you'll live out this divine calling. You'll live out the fact that God has elected you. Second Peter 1.10, and I'll leave you with this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election or choosing, it might say, sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. What does he mean there? He means if you want to have assurance, if you're concerned, hey, maybe I'm not elect, but you think you're a Christian, do what the Bible says. Live it out. Produce good fruit. It's not the only thing. We have to look at the heart and the desires. But Peter there is emphasizing, do what I've told you in this letter. Be diligent to make it sure. Not that you can elect yourself or choose yourself, but you can have certainty and assurance that God has elected you through your faith in Christ and repentance and living a godly life. Not to earn anything. This is after the fact of saving faith. So a difficult teaching and yet a good teaching because none of us would be saved without this. And that's why Paul is talking about it. 
he is talking about this, showing that God chooses. It's not as if the word of God has failed when all Israel doesn't believe because God hasn't chosen every single Jew or every single person in the world to believe. So let's think about that as we're taking the Lord's Supper, what Christ has done for us, what the Father has done for us, what the Spirit has done for us. Oh Lord, thank you for this teaching. It would not be something man would make up, Lord. It's too difficult for man. This is a doctrine that comes from you. You've revealed it. It humbles us. It makes us love you all the more. It helps us to understand why things are sometimes the way they are with people. And we do pray for the lost. We don't know who are the rejected ones. We look back and we we see who doesn't believe and then dies in their unbelief. But we can't know as long as they're alive, whether they're elect or whether they're reprobate. And so give us a love for the lost. Help us to sow the seed. Help us to give the call of the gospel, Lord. And let us be moved to pursue our faith with holiness and love for you and an awesome fear of you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.